0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Good morning, church. How we doing? I know, I know, I'm not Pastor Will. My name's Stephen. Um, as you guys are finding a seat, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm an elder candidate here at New Heights. Um, I help facilitate uh, community through our life groups, and I also have the privilege of serving on our hospitality team and also on our kids' team. Um, whenever, I, whenever I serve in kids, and Miss Tina knows this, she's back there with, with them right now, we have what we call is the big idea. The big idea. And the big idea is so that if you don't remember anything else, you remember this one thing. All right? And so you know what y'all get this morning? You get the big idea. All right? So despite our sin, God is sovereign. Amen? Despite our sin, God is sovereign. This is normally where I have the kids just scream it to the top of their lungs and repeat after me, but I will forego that so that you don't have to. But what does that mean? Despite our sin, God is sovereign. See, throughout history, God's sovereignty and our sin have been interwoven And this morning, I wish to unpack the pitfalls of our depravity and how the promises of the divine are sure. So the only difference is that God's sovereignty has no point of origin, right? God was not created, nor does his character develop. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is all-sufficient he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful. And God's sovereignty alludes to the fact that he has absolute governing control and authority and rule in all, over all, and through all, period. See, one of the many reasons why God is sovereign and in control of everything is because he created everything, right? Right? And so Adam and Eve were created in the garden, perfect harmony, perfect fellowship with God until that perfect unity was severed by sin. See, that's the difference between us and God is the fact that our origin is marred by sin because we inherit sin and death from our father, Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That leaves us with a huge problem, right? And so the big picture is is that we need Jesus, but how many times does our sin and ourself get in the way? And so that's what we are gonna unpack this morning as we've been going through saints and villains in Genesis. We have noticed this trend of God taking jacked up sinners and calling them out and using them, making a covenant with them. He made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, right? And he promises Abraham and says, I will make you the father of many nations and I will give you land to dwell. And God was true to his covenant. It wasn't conditional, Abraham, if you do this and this and this and this, then I'll do what I say. In fact, just last week, we learned that Jacob, he starts to wager with God, if you do this, if you do that, then you will be the Lord my God. See, God's covenant was sure and kept. God is a covenant keeper. And he made a promise with Abraham, and that that promise was handed down to Isaac. And then from Isaac, now it is to Jacob, where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 29 and 30. And even while these patriarchs were villainous and they were so jacked up, they were deplorable people, we see that God's plan was not prevented. Despite our sin, God is sovereign. And so what we're going to do today, Genesis 29, 30, crack open your Bible, and we're going to talk about five pitfalls in the life and the story of Jacob's family. And we're also going to see how God was still at work during all that. So the first pitfall is deception. Deception. Is anyone here confident enough, brave enough to raise your hand if you ever ordered on Wish? Do you remember Wish? You remember that trend where you saw on Facebook? There we go. So Kyle was like, I can't wait to hear that story. That's probably a really good story behind it. But Wish was where this is something that looks so good, right? It looks awesome. It's pretty cheap. I can't believe it's that. So I'm going to go ahead and buy it. And then you buy it, and you don't get anything what you thought you were going to get, Right? And so I did some digging, and I was—I love part of sermon prep that you know kind of takes you outside and you're looking. And I found this. All right, so if you were to order uh, Seth Rogen, I think we've got a slide with Seth Rogen. And if you ordered Seth Rogen, this is actually what you would get. You would get Pastor Will, <laughs> Pastor Will with the fish, right? And so we thought we were getting one thing, but we're actually getting the other. Remember, the, what about the trend Instagram versus reality, right? Because nobody actually looks that good on social media. We all use the filters and we pretend everything's fine, but it's really not, right? So I actually found this. Here's, here's Pastor Jeremy, right? So we got staff picture of Pastor Jeremy, and then this is actually Pastor Jeremy in reality, right? There's Pastor Jeremy in the wild. <laughs> See, sometimes we think we know what we're getting, but we get something completely different. This is how Genesis 29 opens up for Jacob. Jacob meets this beautiful girl named Rachel at a watering hole. He waters her sheep. He says, is your dad Laban? She's like, yeah, come on to the house, meet him. So he meets Laban and Laban's like, hey, that's cool and all that you like her, but you need to serve seven years for me and then you can marry her. Jacob's like, wow. I guess it's worth it. She's beautiful. Sure. What the heck? I'll serve seven years. So Jacob, seven years working, toiling, working for Laban. Time passes by quickly because he's so in love with this girl. He just, time just goes. It's like in the notebook on, uh, on some Hollywood, Hollywood movie, right? It's just going so fast. And it's the night of the wedding. Jacob is so excited to get his bride. But what he didn't realize was that Laban put a veil over the bride-to-be, and guess what? It was actually Rachel's sister, Leah. See, Jacob got played. (laughs) The deceiver got deceived. And if you remember, Jacob was the one who took advantage of his brother Esau, right? Remember whenever the, the bowl of soup and he's like, hey, you know, you just look tired and weary. Let me get you this bowl of soup and you give me your birthright. Esau's like, yeah, sure. Why not? It ain't doing me no good right now. And then later on in, in Jacob's life, whenever he dresses up all hairy like, uh, like a Sasquatch uh, for, for his dad so that he can appear to be like his brother so that he can sneak and, and trick his father into getting uh, the, the blessing from him. And so he takes that from Esau. See, in fact, Jacob lives out the meaning of his name, which is usurper, deceiver. And he lives this out, and we see it time and time again. And it actually, we see it in Laban's life as well. See, deception seeks power and control at the the expense of other people. What's the opposite of deceit? Truth. Yet deceit will take truth, and it will manipulate it, it will twist it, It will hide it, it will try to redefine it, to look just close enough to it, but not just quite. That's what our culture does today. Laban's motive behind deceiving Jacob was fueled out of control, pride, and greed. And so Jacob wore a disguise, had deceit in his heart. Laban puts the veil over his daughter, his own daughter, to trick Jacob. Twisting, hiding the truth. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing, right? We can allow deceit to fester and grow in the darkest and deepest places of our heart. Covering up, blending in, playing the part, hiding sin. And whenever we do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit we quench the Holy Spirit. And if we're not careful, we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. See, deception really is a heart problem. Deception is all about self-autonomy. I'm in control. It's self-governance, saying this is my life. I can live it however I want. I'm gonna do it my way. My ways are better than God's ways. And it tricks you. It tricks you because deception, the thing about deception, is the fact that you think you're deceiving others, but really you're deceiving yourself. Right? And if God is in control, which he is, who are we to think that we can take that from him? The audacity to think that we can lord over what God has ordained is treason to him. And so we pick up here in Genesis chapter 29, 21 through 25. Say amen if you're with me. Hallelujah for you five. All right. (laughs) Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, "'Why have you done this to me? "'Did I not serve you for Rachel?' Why then have you deceived me? And so in an ironic twist, Jacob got a taste of his own medicine. Jacob seemingly gets what he got going to him, right? He got what he deserved. And it would be easy to think that. You know what, Jacob? You've been doing that for so long. It's your own fault. It's your own fault. But regardless, whether Jacob got what he deserved, none of us deserve anything, right? It's easy to point the other finger. other people. But whenever a person takes advantage of you, whenever a person mistreats you, your emotions run high, right? The anger. Can you imagine just the the feelings and the emotion of these characters right now here in Genesis 29 and 30? How Laban was puffed up with pride so much because he just tricked his daughter and tricked uh, Jacob? The puffed up conceit that came with it. What about Leah? Leah's deflated sense of feeling worthless and unloved because Jacob was like, I didn't want that girl. Or Rachel, who was confused and frustrated by the actions of her father and Jacob being confused and frustrated, but he's angry because he just got humiliated. See, these emotions and sometimes the feelings that we feel are not always bad, but they can unveil sin in our life because our feelings create a sense of longing. And that longing was created by God and meant to be filled and satisfied in him alone. And so that brings us to the second pitfall of discontent. Not only deception, but the pitfall of discontent. Discontent can be found in the smallest of things, right? Like how many of y'all got that red light in your life that you're like, I don't know why that's there. I'm tired of waiting at this red light. I got one right down the street, all right? I look at that thing, I'm waiting five minutes. I'm like, I'm not even sure. There's no one here. Um, can we change this? Maybe if I could just go to the gas station and like slip on through, we just bypass that red light. We would rather drive a mile around the road than wait at that red light, amen? And I, I, that's what I'm talking about. Now you guys chime in. So... You get me. And we want to, the thing is, is our culture and our desire, we don't want to wait, right? We don't want to wait. We want it now. It's self-gratification. See, discontentment, it craves self-promotion. Because of that longing that we have and the feeling that we have, we must promote ourselves in order to feel better. If I get this, then I will be happy. If I just do this, then I'll feel better. See, truthfully, it's an identity crisis. It's an identity crisis because God has created us in the image and likeness of God. And everyone on this planet is created in the image and likeness of God. And whenever we see that Adam and Eve were created, they grew discontent because they desired to have what God said they couldn't have. We are no different. We create idols in our hearts. We create things to cultivate our self-worth, our identity, and our value all the time. And we see this here in Genesis 29, 31 through 35. Continuing God's word, it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Guess what? She conceived again and bore another son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. And she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. The unloved first wife, Leah, felt unvaluable to her husband, Jacob. Her feeling of worthlessness Instead of finding her worth in God, being given something that only God could give, she sought it out through children. And this worthlessness led to discontentment. And her discontent left this longing. Let's just stop right here. What are you doing to prove your value or your worth? To yourself, to your spouse, to other people. If I do this, if I give this, then they'll think I'm worth something. Then they'll, then they'll appreciate me for who I am. But really, it leaves us wanting more because they never do that, right? The boss never packs you on the back and be like, man, good job today. They don't do that. They don't do that. Whether it's in a season of singleness, Whether it's in your marriage, what you do doesn't define who you are. See, your marriage should mirror the gospel. Both of you, husband and wives, you are going to severely mess it up, right? Back and forth, just taking turns messing it up. And it's the mess-ups in our life, it's the unconditional love of Jesus, his submission, his sacrifice that held him to the cross for you. And so your marriage should mirror the gospel, not loving somebody for what they do, but for who they are. Your identity is in him, and there's nothing you could do for him to love you any more or any less. Amen? That's good news. That's good news. That is the gospel. The sad thing is, is you know what Leah hoped would make her valuable to her husband? It was kids. It was these children. If I can give him kids, then he'll be happy. If I can just please him, he'll love me. Then he'll want to be with me. And guess what? Jacob didn't. He didn't love her. He didn't want her. The Bible says that Leah felt afflicted, hated, and alone. Maybe the same feelings have crept up in your life over time, maybe now, and they're leading you toward discontent. And if you're struggling with your feelings this morning, I want to encourage you that your faithfulness to God, despite your feelings, will bring him glory. Amen? And with your feelings, if you press on and you lean into that, into the fiery trial, into the tribulation, into the suffering and the affliction and the feeling that no one else cares about you, you will grow more than you ever thought because that's sanctification. It's molding you and it's going to change you if you draw close to Christ. So I would encourage you to pray. Prayer aligns your heart with God. Read the word, right? The Psalms are filled with emotions. Come talk to me. I'll show you David was peed off a lot. Like He was an angry guy. He was a sad guy. He was a depressed guy. But yet he constantly clung to God and said, hey, God, where are you? I need you. My eyes look into the hills. Where does my help come from? And God was there every single time. And it wasn't pretty but he had God. What else would he need? Also, talk to a trusted friend, somebody you can trust. This is my plug for groups. If you're not in a group, I would encourage you to get in one because God has not designed you to live this life alone. And the beauty of having a community and a family that you can be vulnerable with is that you could take those emotions and slap them on the counter and they love you anyway. I can't tell you how many times I've been like, guys, I don't really want to be here right now. I love y'all, but you press on anyway. You press on anyway. Lastly, if you really want to, you can help, love, and serve other people. I found in the darkest times of my life when I take my eyes off my problems and I place my attention on others and I serve them and I love them and I help them, it really helps. It really helps. I love when Moses, the writer of Genesis, he encountered God through a burning bush in Exodus 3 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I know their suffering, and I have come to deliver them. Is it not comforting to know the promise of the divine? That he sees you in your suffering and in your affliction, he sees you for who you are the good, the bad, and the ugly. Speaking of good, bad, and ugly, we continue in Genesis 30, 1 through 5. It says, When Rachel saw that she bore ch- no, nope. hold on, I'll start over again. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. See the discontentment? Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? And then she said, here, take my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. You see how this discontentment, this longing, to change everything. It's starting to rewrite the script. I love that. Y'all keep yelling. I love it. They're learning. But discontentment will tempt you to rewrite the script, and it gives way to our third pitfall, desire. Desire. Deception, discontent, desire. We continue to witness the depravity of this family, and when you're desperate, like they were, you will begin to do things that you never thought you would do. Your sinful desires promote self-preservation. You go into panic mode. I ain't got what I think I need, so I'm just gonna start creating things and doing things in order to, to make me feel better. And so we chase after these desires. In Galatians chapter six, it talks about reaping and sowing. It says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And Paul continues and says, if you sow your flesh, then you will reap corruption. But if you sow the spirit, you will reap eternal life. We either desire to be self-sufficient in ourselves, or we will trust and depend on God for sufficiency in Christ Jesus. Rachel and Leah's desperate desire to gain the attention of their husband turns into rivalry. And this rivalry turns into envy. It turns into jealousy. In a few short months, the 9 a.m. service and the 11 a.m. service will collide into one. And there will be Sundays where you won't be able to find a parking spot. Someone will take your parking spot. There will be new people coming in. They're talking to the pastors, so I can't talk to the pastors. Why is there a line for coffee? I can't stand this. You know what? I'm checked out. You might think I'm joking, but I'm serious. Because we will have to put our preferences to death for the sake of unity. Philippians two, three, and four says, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." See Rachel and Leah; they got so com- they got so uh, they got so blinded by discontent that they started living in the shadow of comparison, living in the shadow of comparison will leave you severely disappointed. Because in the story of Genesis 29 and 30, Rachel desired to be like Leah, making babies for the husband, and then Leah wanted to be like Rachel. I just want to be loved and wanted. This is no different from the beginning in the garden when Adam and Eve grew discontent because they wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. So my question is, is what What are you giving unnecessary attention to that won't satisfy, that steals your desire, that steals your attention away from God? One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is Psalms 37, four and five. It says, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Pretty sweet deal. But we don't know what it means to delight in the Lord. It means to submit. It means to be satisfied in him. The second, it says, uh, delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to him. Trust in him, and he will act. It's an amazing promise. It's an amazing promise that we have in Christ Jesus, and it's not meant to get you the nicest car Whenever God changes your heart and he gives you a different desire and you delight in him, all you think about is him. You hunger and you thirst after righteousness and you drink of that water and you thirst no more. You eat that bread and it satisfies you because He's the bread of life. Our desire needs to be after him. And if I can ask you a very personal question, what are you desiring after this morning? What are you craving more than anything? What's robbing your attention from God? I hate Netflix. Gosh, I hate it. Gets me every time. Steals my attention. I just, I'm just prone to bend everything. And I need to spend more attention and time devoted, writing, loving people, Doing what God has made me to do and fulfilling that longing and that sense of desire in him alone. And God wants you to be 100% satisfied, not just a little bit. I would like to report that Rachel and Leah desired after God. They got their crap together and they're like, okay, God, you win. We trust in you. But this rivalry ramps up. It starts to get gross. We see that these sinful desires lead into our fourth pitfall, Degradation. Degradation. So to catch you up, Leah had four kids, right? Well, Rachel didn't like that, so she's like, hey, take my hand servant Bil- Bil- Bilhah, and uh, so Jacob has two kids with her. Well, Leah didn't like that, so Leah ends up giving her servant Zilpah to Jacob so that he can have kids by her. It's just a mess. And by this time, in Genesis chapter 30, sinful desires turn into degradation. Degradation is, is Degrading people so that you can stay on top. Degrading people and devaluing them, looking at them for how they can benefit you. And by this time, the oldest son, Reuben, was working in the fields and he came across a fruit known as a mandrake. It's a beautiful parallel, I think, of the garden. There's this fruit. And this mandrake was an aphrodisiac thought to promote sexual activity. So Reuben goes to his mom, hey Leah, mom, I found some mandrake, am I be able to help with your situation with dad in the bedroom? You're you're barren right now. Well, so, so Leah's like, Rachel's like, hey yo Leah, I see that you found some mandrake, let me get some of that. And Leah's like, what are you talking about? You've already taken away my husband. You think you can take my son's mandrakes too? She's very upset. And Rachel's like, you know what? I'll let you sleep with Jacob if you give me some of those mandrakes. She sexually exploits her husband for a fruit. And she depended more on that fruit to give her a baby than what God could do while we've already seen God open the barren wombs of women and just produce miracles, right? And this would continue to be the story. And so Genesis 14 through 17 takes us right into a mature rated HBO Game of Thrones situation. And we've got in the days, verse 14 of chapter 30, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and he brought them to his mother. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, hey, Jacob, you must come into me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. We got a jacked up situation. And I'm only going to say this once. If you use sex as a tool for your pleasure only, instead of a gift as the way God intended it, within the realm of marriage, within where he intended it, it should be shamed. And I can say that because I'm only up here every now and then. Like, they may not invite me back. I'm fine with that. We cannot do that. This is not right. This is not okay. The fact that deception reveals discontentment and discontentment reveals sinful desires and then we start degrading people and putting people down in order to puff up ourselves. is selfish and that's what we see. The people who were intertwined with the covenant of God, this is what we get. We should point the finger right back at us. This is is who God's got right here. And somehow, in his grace and in his mercy, he takes me, a villain, a person who has violated his command and has made me a saint. An amazing testimony of grace and love and mercy. And so we see the evolution of depravity happening here. And I don't mean that men and women grow more and more wicked. Right, Because Romans 3.23 says, for all fall short of the glory of God. James says that if you keep the whole law, but you stumble on one point, you're guilty of it all. Jeremiah says that your heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I'll tell you who knows it. God. And he loves you anyway. See the smallest sin of discontent led into sexual exploitation. We must not look at Jacob Lee and Rachel and think, "You know what? I don't do any of that crazy stuff. I'm pretty good." It's a slow fade. These small sins, if not put to death, John Owen said, "You better be killing sin or sin will be killing you." If we don't put these small sins to death. They're going to snowball and they're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger to where we end up so far away from God, we don't even recognize ourselves. We must take those, our selfish actions. We must take our bad mouth and our attitude and we must lay it at the cross of Jesus. It's a slow fade. If our sin is not put to death, then sin will put us to death. And so Leah uses her firstborn to purchase intercourse with her husband. She has three more children. It worked. She's got Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah. Then Rachel uses her husband, and we see that she exchanged her husband for the mandrake, for the aphrodisiac, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum God takes his perfect son, Christ Jesus, and he sees you in your sin, in your depravity, in your loneliness, and he exchanges it out. And Jesus goes to the cross, and he dies a death that you could not die, living a life that you could not live to give you eternal life with God. How amazing, how beautiful. This exchange doesn't make sense. God didn't give Jesus to benefit himself. He gave Jesus to benefit you. And that offering and that invitation is here this morning. And so despite our sin, God is sovereign. Look at Genesis 30, verse 22. It tells us, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened up her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. God did not remember her in the sense that he forgot Rachel, just as he has not forgotten you in your longing this morning. Even from scripture, uh, that we know that God is omniscient, that he is all-knowing. Psalm 139 says that he knows the hairs on your head. I don't have any. Somebody still knows He knows whenever we sit, he knows whenever we rise up, he knows the words that are going to come out of our mouths, he knows the thoughts that are going to come out of our brain, and yet he does not look at us repulsed or disgusted. This is pretty much how I view my my relationship with God. I struggle so much thinking there's no way God could love me. I'm disgusting. And you know what I have to remind myself every time, and I encourage you to do the same? He loves you. He loves you so much, and he's just opening up his arms, and he's inviting you in. He does not condemn you. If we are in Christ, Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those of you that are in Christ Jesus. And he wants you. He desires you. So put everything down and turn to him. He's all-knowing. See, God operates in seasons. Not like we do, but... Oftentimes, we don't like to wait. We don't want to wait for God's timing. And so, we insert our goodwill and our works to suit our own pleasure. Finally, God had opened the womb of Rachel. Given her a son, Joseph, and then Jacob's like, 12 kids, four wives, 14 years, I'm done. I'm going back home. So he goes to Laban, he goes to Laban and he says, hey, my time's up, I'm taking my family, getting out of Dodge. And then we get Genesis 30, 27, brings us the final pitfall of divination, divination. Genesis 30, 27 says, but Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you See, Laban wasn't an idiot he was just greedy he looked at Jacob saw all the wives saw all the kids the more wealthy that Jacob got the wealthier Laban got so he wanted to keep him around and so Laban by his own discernment by his own determination he pursues good fortune we seek divination today We try to look at the future and we try to dictate it. We try to psych ourselves up through motivation tactics and self-help books because we we want today to be the best day. We want it's a new year, it's a new me. And we try to prepare ourselves and work ourselves into having the best future that we can possibly have. We think that we have control over what God has already ordained. Instead of trusting Him, we take matters into our own hands. But there is no need for divination when the divine exists. And anything that doesn't have eternal significance is meaningless. It's a waste of your time. I'm sorry to hurt your feelings. But you can blame the author of Ecclesiastes and so on and so on and so on. In Ecclesiastes, it says it's like chasing after the wind. If you're not chasing after God in the kingdom of heaven this morning, you're chasing wind. It's pointless. Philippians says, whatever gain I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Or what about what profit a man if he gains the whole world Loses his soul. My version would be you killed it on Wednesday. Man, you really got them reps. You're really killing it in the gym, but you didn't read your Bible. You didn't pray. You didn't help anybody. You didn't share the gospel. It's meaningless. Don't matter how good your body looked. Don't matter. It's meaningless. See, Laban was idolatrous. Go ahead and work out though. I'm not condemning it. You can do it. I'm being funny. Laban was idolatrous and greedy. Laban wanted, wanted, wanted. He wanted physical, tangible blessings. He wanted more stuff. See, the beauty of it is that the evidence of blessing is not in your possessions. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What already has been done for you. And this is beautifully crafted out in Ephesians chapter 1. And see, as jacked up as Jacob was, he was attached to the spiritual blessing of God's covenant. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, in him, in Jesus, Christian, believer, you have spiritual blessing. And you have more than you could ever imagine. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. We're seeing the fullness of time being planned out right here in Genesis, where Jesus would come. And it says at the last part in Ephesians 1.10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. No matter what you're going through this morning, it is not, it's not, God does not just see it, God is in it. And I can't tell you how your suffering and how your sin are interwoven with God's sovereignty, but he is. But he is because we have a hope and we have an assurance and that assurance is Jesus Christ. Jesus is gentle and lowly and he is waiting for you this morning to throw everything down and to come unto him and he will give you rest. He's waiting for you to take your desires and place them upon him, to delight after him, to commit your way to him, to trust him. There's a wedding invitation going on right now, and it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how much you think you've sinned. Jesus is right there. And see, God is not the evil uh, wedding arranger like Laban seeking to take advantage of you. Rather, he has given himself up, he has given his son up for you, not to benefit himself, but to benefit you so that you could be an heir and a child and a daughter and a son and a king of the most high. Amen? Despite our sin, God is sovereign. So we see in Genesis 29 and 30 how God was working in the midst. In his sovereignty, God used the rivalry between Rachel and Leah, the sin of Rachel and Leah to bring about the 12 tribes of Israel, which would set the stage for the Old Testament. Throughout God's sovereignty, God would use the favorite son, Joseph. He wouldn't be the promised son, but he would be preserved so that he would preserve Israel, God's people. And in his sovereignty, God used the unloved, the feeling of worthlessness of Leah, who felt felt afflicted, hated, and alone. And through her, her fourth son, Judah, would come the line of the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior. See, God was working, even though there was a mess going on. And he is doing the same in your life now. So I don't know what your future holds. But I promise that if you, and I promise this because I I read this word, I wish I had my big thick Bible, I read this word, and it keeps telling me that those who draw near to him, he will draw near to them. He will comfort you in your affliction, in your suffering, and even though we fail day after day after day. He says, come here. Give me a hug. Let me love you. Let me show you my goodness, my grace, and my mercy. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.